Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Percy, and I'm here today with Todd. Hey there. And Nick. Greetings. This week, we're here to talk about the way Blades in the Dark positions its GM and the level of transparency it encourages between GM and players. And we thought we would kick it off by just explaining a little bit about Blades' stated philosophy about the relationship between the GM and the players. So there's a section in the Blades in the Dark handbook that says, uh, and I'm directly quoting here, a role-playing game is a conversation between the GM and the players, punctuated by dice rolls to inject uncertainty and surprising turns. Uh, personally, I really love this as a as a summary of how role-playing games work and what's exciting about them. Um, and I think that this is something that feels very much like it's part of Blades's powered by the apocalypse heritage. Uh, I've seen phrases like this um, or sentences like this in a lot of powered by the apocalypse games. And I think this idea that it's a conversation is helpful in shifting the game away from the sort of gamist uh, competitive mode that war games can fall into and into a more narratively driven, like we've talked about before, kind of fiction first framework. Something that I think is interesting that this uh, that this does is that it does still position like the players as a block and the GM as a separate individual, which is like not a good or a bad thing, but it is still a choice and it is still like firmly break it, breaking that into two camps as opposed to saying everybody is a player and the GM happens to serve a different role than the player characters, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the GM unquestionably does have a, a different role. We can talk a little bit in a second about how Blades in the Dark starts to shift some of the power out of the hands of solely the GM, but it, it does feel still like the GM is ultimately the arbitrator of most of the things that happen kind of in the world of Blades in the Dark. If only because they're controlling, you know, every other gang's response to what you're doing and what the blue coats do and what the public thinks of you. Yeah, that's still a lot of power. I wonder to what extent you could argue that in Blades in the Dark, more so than in other role playing games, the GM is legitimately just playing the characters of every other faction and every other force in the world. Like, because I think the way that this game sets itself up as this, like, I think the game in many ways sets itself up as a social interaction or not a social interaction, but it it sets itself up as exchanges of power between groups of people. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one way that it really strongly embodies this idea of a game as a conversation, because I think a lot of, in my experience, at least like most of the work of GMing this game is not only like adjudicating what happens and ticking and making clocks and like figuring out how a story progresses when you're making a score, but it is also like charting all of the ripple effects of how everybody else in the world feels about the crew doing X, Y, or Z thing. Well, and what I, what I enjoy about it is that it, it doesn't force a like, uh, a shadowy behind the scenes sort of thing, like on on the topic of transparency, one of the things that John Harper goes out of his way to say is that like when something is going to happen, when the players are going to do something that is against one faction or for another, he asks that you like explicitly tell the players what the ramifications of that action might be um, so that they're in the know and it's not like, oh, well, you guys didn't like check over here for this thing. And so these guards came in and like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, are you going to leave that door unlocked? Really? 
when you're going in here for a smash and grab that sounds dicey and that's so interesting because i feel like that is in many ways kind of in like intention with the idea of like don't like plan through all of the possible ramifications of what you're doing and just make a choice and do the thing and jump in in media res like i feel like that's so interesting that like but i guess it is ameliorated by the fact that within the world like there is no escape like you you have to choose between probably like all outcomes that are mixed good and bad because you don't like there's no <laughs> there's there's likely never going to be an option where everything is is a good outcome and a thing that you want so i guess that is how you how you navigate that tension but that is interesting to me yeah i mean i think it's i, I think it's less about planning everything out and more about saying every choice comes with like good and bad consequences. It's about setting up drama, essentially. That is the thing, like Todd was saying, that Harper keeps pointing to is like, if you help one faction, it means necessarily screwing over another, which automatically makes those choices more interesting than just, should we help these people? And then, Mm -hmm. you know, or should we do nothing? It's more, much more interesting to say, should we help these people, which will make the, the other people hate us? Or should we do the the reverse? Like, what's the more bearable option is a more complex choice than just like, do we, I don't know, I'm thinking of like, you know, my current Pathfinder game is sort of like, do we, do we intervene in this thing or do we just like fuck off and leave? Because <laughs> well, I feel like the piece of GM advice that I see given most often is like, your players have to feel like what they're doing matters. And this game is like, putting that into the mechanics as opposed to just like putting the onus on the GM themselves to generate what those consequences are like this has things to support doing that. And it is kind of baked into the structure of the game, which I think is, is an interesting factor in how this game positions its GM role. Yeah. I think one of the other um, interesting ways that this game positions the GM is that uh, it does shift some of the like adjudi rules adjudication power away from the GM and onto the players. Um, again, I'm quoting from a section of the rule book where Harper sums it up by saying the GM presents the fictional situation in which the player characters find themselves. The players determine the actions of their characters in response to the situation. The GM and the players together judge how the game systems are engaged. And I think that is really the blades in the dark kind of innovation or I, th I think it is. I'm not a big games historian, but it, this seems like it's a departure from, you know, in the kind of apocalypse world powered by the apocalypse setup. Still, usually it is the default is that the GM or the MC or whoever is calling for, OK, you said you want to do X. That means it is a, you know, role plus hot or whatever. Whereas in Blaze in the Dark, it really is up to the players to say, I'm going to try X and I think it is mechanically this type of role. It's a finesse role or a prowl role or whatever. Yeah. And then the GM says, given given the circumstances, here is how that might affect the world. Here is what you're risking by doing that. And that, yeah, feels feels like a like a progression or like a different approach or philosophy. Mm. I do also like this is a slightly different thing, but the way that the moves for the players are um, intentionally vaguely defined such that like instead of just going aggro on someone as you might in Apocalypse World, um, like you can get in someone's face um, with like a, a skulk or a finesse or 
any number of different things depending on how you are trying to do it. Um, and Harper is very much about like letting the players determine what it is that they're rolling instead of you, the GM, asking for a particular role. I feel bad that I keep bringing it up, but like it is a John Harperism in my experience because in the game Lady Blackbird, like there are characters who have abilities like sorcery, but there is no explanation of what sorcery means or like <laughs> what powers you might have. It is completely left up to the player to decide whether that means like you can like make a gust of wind or like set something on fire with magic or if that means like you can read minds or whatever. Like it is freeing, but also like a little bit intimidating in my experience as a player to be like, oh, like the <laughs> I get to like I have total agency, not total agency, but a lot of agency in deciding uh, what my character is able to do, um, which is which is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. That agency is something that I think more and more modern games are are leaning toward either in the mechanics or now I'm thinking about masks, which has as its kind of default, like we've talked about before, that if you if you're using your superhero powers to do like what they do then you don't even have to roll. You know, if you have super strength and you want to lift, I don't know, a car, it would all, again, it's kind of similar to Lady Blackbird. That's a game that asks you to define for yourself, like what your character's limitations are. But if you're like, yeah, when I'm not under stress, I can lift a car. And you have a situation where you need to do that without it being any big deal thing. You can just do that. You don't need to make a roll. Yeah, I feel like it's the start Again, uh, again, I'm leery about calling it a start because I don't know historically whether that's true, but it's it's a very popular earlier example of, you know, this movement toward giving more and more agency to the players rather than the kind of combative, separated um, relationship between players and GM. I think it's a nice middle ground. Like this is like a whole can of worms that we don't have to necessarily dig to the bottom of at this at this moment there is kind of a vogue right now i think of like gmless systems or or systems that are yeah with no clearly defined person who is adjudicating the rules or one no one clearly defined person who is like playing the role of the world around the pcs and i think there is a place for those games and i think certain games really thrive when they are that sort of like we are a community playing a game and like doing a thing and building a world together and nobody is invested with more power than anybody else like i think there are games for which that is a great choice but there are also games where it is just nicer and easier to have a person who you know for a fact by default like their job is to like make decisions about certain things um like i think in some ways blades in the dark balances that like giving people agency but also avoiding that sort of paralysis that happens when nobody wants to just like dive in and like say this is the thing yeah as we've said before there's something that's really nice about the judgment call section and divvying up who gets to have final say like all of this is a conversation but players get final say over some things gm gets final say over others um, and i like that it keeps us from just like going down a rabbit hole of only debating and like circular reasoning around things and it's just like cool this sounds like a plan great done um, and then we can like move on to the next bit. Yeah. Yeah. I like that in the handbook, they specifically call out that nobody is in charge of the story and that everything similarly, I think this is another sort of PBTA inheritance. Like everything is coming from what the players are doing as opposed to you bringing something in from outside. And I think in some ways this game facilitates that also by having a world already built for you. 
So you as a GM don't necessarily have a personal attachment to like, oh, like I made this really cool faction. Like, I hope the players like interact with it, you know, um, like I, th- I think, again, structurally, it's supporting sort of letting the GM let go of certain things um, and really like live in the moment and respond to what the players are bringing. And outside of the like this very small nudge that Harper calls for with the first score, where he says that you should like try to have like two or three factions involved in it to push the players in one direction or another and like start making choices. Other than that, he wants you to do almost no planning. There's no like, ah, and then we will do a ghost heist and then we will do a blah, blah, blah. Uh, It's very like, okay, here's here's a little powder keg for you. Once that resolves, wherever you want to go, we'll figure it out and like present opportunities for your players if they feel a little aimless. But other than that, like have a very clear conversation with them, um, check in in and out of character about like, what do you want to do? Do you want to do a full scene about this? Do we want to walk through the docks or do you want to just like cut to you slamming someone up against a wall and demanding their money? Any number of things could happen here. Um, And I like that it kind of puts the characters more firmly in the driver's seat than other games I feel we've played up until this point. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it also does a good job of navigating that terrain between you know, some players who really want to role play and and players who are more invested in the mechanical side of things, because rereading the the handbook, I was like, oh, well, you could actually you could play this game in a way that is very like bare bones and like mechanically uh, driven. Um, and I think the the book actually talks about this a little bit in the principles section. Mm hmm. But I did not have a chance to review that. So if anybody remembers it better than I do, take it away. Yeah, um, there's there's two principles that are laid out back to back. And one is like ask characters what they're doing by their name. So don't say like, Sarah, what's Jezza doing? And instead just say like, how's Jezza doing this? Or like, mm-hmm. Jezza, how are you doing this? Either way. And then right after that. Um, it talks about checking in with your players to make sure that like these are the scenes that they want to do. So like, Sarah, do you want to play out X, Y, and Z, or do we want to just jump into this? With an emphasis on like always cutting to the interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to you know talk to every shopkeep. We don't need uh, to even there's there's a sequence where it's like you know combat isn't always the most important thing. So if you want to resolve an entire combat encounter with like one role from each player and we determine how well or how poorly they did all of these things you can do that but sometimes it's exciting to go like blow by blow um and so like the zoom in zoom out um nature of these things uh is really important to just remember like what meets the moment and keeps the story interesting at that particular moment in time what this makes me think of is uh is what we talked about a long, long time ago, but that is sort of this like core theatrical principle that comes up a lot when you think about TTRPGs, which is um, Bowal's spectatorship. Like, I think this principle section reminds me of that in that, like, it is determining specific moments when you need to address the actual, like the player and bring them on stage as it were, um, and sort of assess their comfort level with what happens when they are on stage. Like, I think um, identifying that the player and the PC are two different beings, presences, people um, is, is really cool and important in that in identifying like an onstage and an offstage 
you are enabling people to be better equipped to like really make the most of that on stage those that scene where what's happening when they're in character well and i and i was thinking too you know how great that it basically gives you permission to focus on what's interesting to you and that and that that will vary both by group and by the type of game of blades in the dark you're playing i was thinking yeah, that's actually, you know, if you're playing, I don't remember what the Blades term is, but if you're playing the like uh, thugs, I think I think it's called Bravos, that gang type where you're like knee breakers, basically, um, then, yeah, maybe getting past that like outside group of guards to get into the place you're robbing. Not a big deal because you do that. You know, that's how you start every score. So it should just be one roll. On the other hand, one guy pulling a gun on you if you're the shadows the like thieves could be a very like big deal because that's not how your you know your scores normally go and it's a much like riskier more dangerous thing for a group of people who are not planning on violence (laughs) and don't Mm -hmm. normally engage in violence than the people where that's all of what they do yeah to move a little bit to some sort of specific mechanics that I think exemplify the way that the GM and the players are set up to interact within this game. We talked a little bit about position and effect, which essentially like a GM will enter a situation where a player is going to do something and say, okay, like here is the circumstances that are informing where you're coming from. Like you are desperate or risky or controlled, I think are the three positions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the effect is like how, how, how much influence do you wield in actually like making an impact on how how impactful will your action be when you actually do the thing? Yeah. And what I found interesting about that as a player that I didn't really realize until I was playing is that although position and effect both seem like they should feel very important, actually, to me, position feels like the much more significant one, which I'm still parsing what that means um, like for me or about the like world of the game but um i think the reason for this is that the position risky controlled or desperate is what determines the the like negative consequences actually the effect is just you know how much do you succeed at doing the thing whereas the difference between a desperate role and a risky role if you fail is like the difference between severe harm and some harm or if it's controlled no harm at all and you just like didn't do the thing and you have to try a new approach so yeah to me position feels like a really powerful lever for the gm to raise the raise the tension raise the stakes of the game but i also feel like it in some ways like you know, it's that it's that negotiation and it allows for like, I feel like this is a better version of in, I don't know, like a like a D20 game when someone is like, oh, I rolled a seduce the dragon or whatever. Like they ask to do a ridiculous thing that probably won't work. And you're just kind of hoping that you get a natural 20 on it. Like, I think this makes that almost more approachable because you're like it it accounts for that possibility in a way that other systems, I think, don't. And it acknowledges like (laughs) there's a very real likelihood that this will have a limited effect. And, you know, once you know, you can make the choice to do it. Um, But I I think it like I don't want to say it feels more realistic because like ultimately like there is no realism in like uh, jumping from a rooftop into a boat and stabbing someone through the neck or whatever. 
you might be trying to do that would be a desperate position but like i have been playing the assassin's creed game for decades and <laughs> i disagree <laughs> that's a that's a very controlled position to be <laughs> to be in oh i see you're right i'm so sorry um as we know the assassin's creed games are documentaries um <laughs> yes <laughs> um but yeah you know like i th- i think um the system accounting for those things make those choices feel less like the player trying to get one over and actually Mm -hmm. feel like character choices. Like it, I think forces you to be thinking more in character somehow inversely by like, as a player saying, okay, like I know X, Y, and Z about where I'm coming from and what I might be able to do. Well, there's also something about like it, not just being a dice roll with an arbitrary DC. So it's not like I have a one in 20 chance of this absolutely being a banger idea it's like i need to convince my fellow players that this sounds plausible in the shared fiction that we're creating and sounds exciting and i think that that keeps things a little more focused because it doesn't have the random chance element so much and is more about dialogue well this is a place where like additional crunch like i would argue that these this is probably a like on paper pretty crunchy mechanic because it is involving a lot of like factors and negotiating but i also think that yeah that contributes to stronger choices that, that yeah as you say rely on the shared fiction as opposed to just like <laughs> hoping for the best yeah well and it's and it's also i think we mentioned this in our place in the dark explainer but it's, it's also driven by the fact that you are relatively speaking always likely to be able to get some effect you know even if it's only limited but because you get some success on a four or higher and you can always push yourself to roll at least one die even if you have no you know action dots in a particular rating like you always have a 50 percent ish chance minimum of doing something (laughs) which i think is nice and a big shift from like a d20 game where sometimes it's just going to be like oh yeah you need an 18 or better to accomplish anything at all Mm -hmm. Uh, another mechanic that is sort of like another gm player negotiation is the devil's bargain um where the gm will very transparently say like i'll offer you a devil's bargain where you can take a die but this you're risking this thing or this thing will happen um i don't remember the exact wording at this moment but Mm -hmm. it's it's fun because it is kind of nebulous and if the if the gm can't think of anything specifically you can just add heat um because as John Harper writes in the book, like there's always people watching in Duskfall, whether you're thinking about it or not. Like it's full of a lot of different spies and thieves and people willing to screw you over. Um, so as we were saying before, uh, another mechanic that I really enjoy is the GM's move. Tell them consequences and ask. Um, it's very reminiscent of Apocalypse World's MC moves, announce future badness or announce off screen badness. But it feels more direct. You make an explicit, this will happen if you choose this route, and offer the player whether they want to do it or not, knowingly, or take another course of action. I think this is also really useful in faction conversations, which you're supposed to always be aware of. But the like, so-and-so has a lot of informants. If they find out you betrayed them, like they will find out you betrayed them. What are you going to do? Like, I think there's a broader conversation that perhaps we will at some point have about like building consent into games and while i don't think this is like an iteration of like consent in the way that we think of consent i think it is 
nice that this game is like encouraging you to allow the players to make informed decisions as opposed to like I think the stereotypical sort of GM attitude of like um oh like I have all the secrets and I'm gonna like fuck you over at every turn or like I'm gonna you know spring all of these surprises on the players um like it's just a nice shift in attitude that again I think gives the players more power and more agency Todd, Todd mentioned that this is a, feels like a progression from some of the other games that we played on the podcast. Um, and I think probably the stark opposite game that we've played in terms of like relationship between GM and players um, to Blades in the Dark is Paranoia, uh, which is a game where like the GM has final say in everything. The GM has all of the control and is really sort of encouraged to like do stuff to the players. The players, I think, are intended to think that what they're doing matters a lot more than it does or to think that like a lot more things are planned out than they are when in reality, the GM is encouraged to just kind of like do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> do what, do what is interesting and fun for you. Um, nothing has to make logical sense or come from anywhere. Uh, whereas like this is extremely transparent and extremely open with the players about like, here are the ripple effects of your actions. Here is what I am doing. Um, here's what I'll offer you in order to do X thing. Yeah, I think, you know, paranoia is going for a very specific vibe, for lack of a better word, Um, you know, in a very specific play experience that is arbitrary and frustrating and um, manic, for lack of a better word. Um, So I I do think it's worth comparing while also noting that I I think it's uh, it's not so much different philosophies of GMing as much as just like a whole different it's a genre it's a different genre yeah genres of games yeah wait we missed our opportunity to do a theater of the absurd and paranoia episode fuck damn yeah well that's fine <laughs> too late we'll do that we'll do it when we do waiting for godot the role-playing game <laughs> that's a real thing have you seen that that's horrifying. That sounds like the least fun game I've oh, ever no, heard. It's, it's amazing. It's a one page <laughs> RPG. I'll send it to you. Great. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I think this is yeah a different genre entirely and it, it's coming from a different inspiration and a, and a different sort of cultural touchstone. Yeah, this is like a thriller movie. A thing that I'm wondering and, and this was kicking in my, around in my head when we were talking about um the difference between this and a truly GM agnostic or GM less game is I, w- I wonder whether there is a useful function in having a GM like this for something like a thriller, you know, having it basically having somebody whose job it is to increase tension and then the player's job is to resolve it, essentially. I don't know if that's exactly accurate 100% of the time, but that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Um, because I do think that in GM-less games that are you know more about the kind of community play ethos, you know, no dice, no masters games, those kind of that kind of genre, it could be hard. And I think many of those games push back against the idea of telling a you know like character-driven, tightly focused narrative about a group of people particularly a group of exceptional people which is what blades is like the game that i'm thinking of that springs to mind immediately as an example of what i would call like a gm-less community oriented system is the quiet year by avery alder which is like very intentionally like there are no characters in this 
or there are characters in this, but like you aren't playing characters, you're playing a community and like you are all working together towards a shared goal. And it is like very intentionally querying the way that we tell stories and the idea of like conflict and climax being a linear progression. And I don't know that I would say that Blades like wants a linear progression of any kind in that way. But I, th- I think, yeah, you. I think you need someone to play the role of the world if you are focusing really specifically on like the storylines of specific characters. Well, I also think with this specific, like what Blades is trying to do is it's trying to be heists, which like, mm-hmm. as we've discussed, a number of other systems you could like try to do heists in, but it's really not great for them. And when you look at like the the breakdown of a heist, you have the plan, you have the the complication. Usually like the heist is started and something goes wrong, which is literally the engagement role is what goes wrong. Then you have like the the things that they have to get around with the complication and what they're doing. Usually there's a betrayal um, or a twist. Um, and like I can't imagine a GMless way to do a heist like this because I don't know how you can surprise the other players in a way that feels like earned um, in a GM-less system. And I think that's part of what, like, because of what Blades is trying to do, I think it needs a GM. And I think this, this candid conversation about like what works and what doesn't work is really useful for it. And I think, I think you actually, I I think, in theory, it would be possible to do that in a GMless game because if you're building everything, you know, from whole cloth and improvising, like, yeah, anybody could introduce a betrayal or whatever and have it be a shocking surprise. But the, I think the thing that's tricky about those games is they do they require an even higher level of like buy in, I think. I don't know, I'm thinking of the time I played The Quiet Year and it was like fun, but also everybody in the group had like a slightly different desire for what that experience was going to be. And I think the game suffered because of that. Again, again, like in the way that it was still fun, but like I don't think it was a very a quote unquote very good uh playthrough of the quiet year because like we had one person who really wanted to introduce like weird random stuff and then another person who was like not sure how this was going to work and then another person who wanted to you know really like take the survival of this community seriously and those goal those different goals ended up being in tension with each other so you you would need a lot of trust to do that without having somebody whose role is designated as the producer of surprise and tension. Well, because like not to get on like a a soapbox, but I think we are because of like the games and things like that that have like been available to us for a long time and the cultural touchstones that we have when we think about like what is a TTRPG or like what is a board game. They are by nature antagonistic. They're games that you play against other people or, you know, like like I think where we're coming from this game sort of like pushes you a little bit outside of that comfort zone without completely abandoning it. Whereas I think the quiet year, you're right. Like, I think, I think you have to enter that experience knowing like, Oh, this is like, this requires a different attitude and this requires buy-in and this requires like an interest in anthropology. (laughs) I guess also, I guess also that, um, 
yeah I'm, I think, I'm kidding but yeah. <laughs> i mean i i think blades in the dark is is sort of nudging away from the super antagonistic gm versus player player versus other players position that some games have in in a way that is really exciting while not completely sort of uh, yeah abandoning that uh that structure yeah and something i think is interesting and, and i'm curious to hear what you two think about this because i have i feel ambivalent about it but in reading the rules and i will say it doesn't feel this way in play but in reading the rules it strikes me that there is a sort of like checks and balances system written into the game um and i don't know if that's deliberate or something that i'm kind of reading into it but for example uh you know the fact that actually even though it's usually the GM, any player can offer a devil's bargain if you think your like co-player might be interested in one or needs an extra die. Any player at the table is empowered to just do that. And kind of in the most nuts and bolts way, the fact that the player gets to choose the role, the mechanical role that they make and the GM gets to set the position and effect is a very clear like you know yes you can you can pick you know whatever mechanic you want presumably you'll pick one that you're good at but this other person gets to you know set up how effective that mechanic will be i don't know it feels like sort of the one cuts the other chooses of <laughs> this but i don't know if that's me reading antagonism into a system that is not meant for it well, I, I just didn't read it really as antagonistic. Instead, it it forces conversation um, and allows uh, both parties to have control without, you know, having the arbitrariness of like, you need to hit a DC 18 check for that to work. Like it, it allows for and everything's on the table so we can be more creative it's not just like oh well i'm really crap at climbing walls so i guess i will have to do this literally any other way but instead forces the the players to think creatively and the gm to come with an open mind and not just a here are all of the things that you must pass in order to get through this heist and I think I read that as like collaborative and not antagonism. Yeah, I agree with Todd. Like, I, I don't think checks and balances are inherently by nature antagonistic. Like, I, I yeah, I, th- I think it is a way to ensure that both people have agency. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a way of facilitating a give and take. And because now that we've been talking, I am really conceptualizing the role of the GM in Blades in the Dark, at least specifically as like really, really playing the world. And being almost entirely responsive as opposed to um, the opposite of responsive. Um, proactive. <laughs> proactive. Yeah, thank you. Um, like if the GM is just playing the world responding as opposed to offering things for the players to react to, like that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, yeah, I, th- I think there is, it's setting up a back and forth. It's setting up a give and take, but I don't think it is necessarily like dooming that relationship to be antagonistic like it feels like a tennis volley as opposed to throwing darts at one another (laughs) wonderful analogy the two genders (laughs) i do i do because i was looking over a bunch of the gm philosophy and 
you know, moves and all sorts of stuff um, today before we recorded. And one of the things that kept coming up that I really liked is John Harper is just like, ask questions. Like as the GM, ask questions often. Don't always uh, spell everything out for your players, like leave stuff open to, uh, he kind of, he talks about having like a thought cloud about different aspects of a heist before you get there. They're like, there's a courtyard. Are there statues in it? Don't worry about picking yes or no yet. Like once you get there, pick whatever feels best and then like go from there. But not not working in definites ahead of time, just having like a bunch of ideas that you can kind of take from superposition into single position um, once you're there. And really, really, really asking your players all the time to fill in different details for you. Um, not just about what their characters are doing, but like, oh, do you think this guy has a dog? Like, oh, like blah, blah, blah. Um, which really both like helps the the shared fiction um, and helps having like a shared sense of ownership of that fiction. It's not just like, I built a mansion for you to go through and ransack. Um, but instead, like I had some ideas and we'll see what you guys do. And like, let's have a good time together. He also has an emphasis on like, uh the counter clocks um over maps he's like i would rather you draw more clocks than draw any maps at all like maps are maybe not even your best friend in this well i think and i think that goes to the like narratively driven you know it's not a strategy game <laughs> it is it and the spatialization of the world is probably not ever necessary because Really, all that matters is what's the immediate or not. Well, yeah, actually, during a score, certainly what's the like immediate problem. And then once you've like resolved that, what new complication arises from that? I think in the ideal kind of play style, it's just like linking consequence to consequence to consequence. Yeah, I think if you are defining a TTRPG as like a collaborative story or a shared imagining. This game has a really exciting and unique approach to setting up that collaboration and using mechanics really smartly to mediate that collaboration in a way that has checks and balances built into like actually, actually make sure that like everybody has the agency that they, the game sets out to give them. Now that's what I call a blade in the dark. Zing. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertaldine. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Our city is much like yours. Skyscrapers reaching towards the clouds, trains roaring on subway tracks, people bustling through their lives. But there is one major difference. I think I'm just going to run at him. Yeah, 10, 12 tendrils of flame just burst out of my chest at the guy. I figured we already established I don't care if you're a hero. I'm not even really sure if I'm a hero. Clara punches him in the face. But I need you to be heroes in your own right. 
Moon Harbor is an epicenter of powered individuals. From villains to heroes to everything in between, these super beings strive to shape the world for better or for worse. And often caught in the crossfire are the teenagers and young adults who try to balance their heroic identities with their mundane lives. This is supposed to be fun. We will gab, we will share some secrets, but like, no pressure. Yeah, I'm totally kissing him. (laughs) (laughs) And this panel absolutely needs to be like sparks flying everywhere. Make it cheesy. These are the stories of the young heroes of our city. From flights over busy streets to the farthest reaches of space, Moon Harbor Heroes and our spinoff line, Moon Harbor Extended, are Masks, a new generation actual play podcasts that explore the intersection of responsibility to the world versus responsibility to oneself. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts or on Twitter at Moon Harbor Cast.